I just had the pleasure of interviewing Merrick LaHockey. He's an ocean lover like myself, and he just completed a staged circuit navigation swim around the island of Oahu. He did this with his swimming partner, Dr. Stephen Mangalia, and this is the first unassisted circumnavigation of the island on record. Merrick, he's originally from Slovakia, but he resides now here in Honolulu. He's the CEO of Creston ProWorks. It's a business support services company based out of Tokyo, Japan. During our conversation, we delved into various topics, such as his upbringing, his love of the ocean, the importance of goal setting and transnational business, breathing perseverance and his insight into these topics. He brings a unique cultural lens to the conversation, which I thought was invaluable in understanding and navigating the complexities of the modern world. I thought it was interesting and I hope it sets your goals forward. I hope you learn to take from him his experience and I thank you for being here. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Merrick, well, good morning, and thank you for meeting with me today. Um, so tell me about this rough ocean today. What, what, what's it like, the ocean today? Oh, yes. Good morning, Robert. Um, it, it's just, it's great. Um, when when ocean is rough, typically what that means is there's no boats, there's no surface, there's just big waves, strong current. Uh, we have some jellyfish in the water today, men of war, actually not a jellyfish, it's men of war. And it's just wild. It, it cleans your head, it cleans your body mind everything is just just great and after four days of being sick it was just great to be back in the water so how far did you swim today not really far because i i had to dial in to speak with you so i only did about two miles uh, out of the uh, hilton hotel site towards diamond head nice and how long have you been swimming merrick well i started swimming when i was five that goes back to eastern europe the old Russian school times, so uh, I was very intense for quite a few years. Then I stopped swimming after my teenage years, uh, being fed up with being pushed too much. And I came back to swimming when I was back in Hawaii, say about six years ago. So there was quite a big gap when I could not feel, smell and seawater for a couple of years. Yeah. So in Eastern Europe, where were you swimming? Yeah, so a little bit of a background. I was born and raised in Eastern Europe in Slovakia, which is part of former Czechoslovakia, as people may know it. Uh, it was part of the Soviet bloc, but not as many people think that it was part of the Soviet Union. We were just kind of under the extended wings, which is what I guess the current president is trying to reestablish again with all the craziness. But um, so it was Eastern Europe, Slovakia, but the whole programs and everything was kind of ran by the whole USSR type of methodology. So it was very intense. It was part of the Cold War kind of approach as well. So if you're participating in any competitive sport, you are part of the um, competition with the West, so to speak. So yeah, that was when I was five, and then it continued until I was about fourteen. Strictly in pool, it was it was really competitive. So it's to in a short period of time, get as strong as you can and win as much as you can type of approach. So it was very and technical. I'm curious, growing up in the East, I guess, in under kind of a Soviet system or Soviet model, what would you say some of the positives of that kind of structure were in terms of education or sports or anything like that? 
Yeah. So first of all, I mean, like any kids, you know, I was a kid. So when the whole thing ended, which was 1989 with uh, what they called Velvet Revolution, and maybe it took us two more years to get the Russians out completely, all the, all the troops move out. Um, basically, when you're a child, you find fun in everything and anything, which is you just need the environment and you probably know it through your own daughter that, you know, whatever you have, it's fun. And so what we had then was a lot of free time. The school system was quite strict and quite structured, but at the same time, it had elements of what, you know, schools, like school systems like Montessori have now. So we had a lot of hands-on. We had a lot of, um, say, gardening type of stuff, cooking, you know, and all type of things. So we, were, we, we learned a lot. And so it was interesting for us. Um, the sports sides of things in schools was really good as well because there were clubs after school. Uh, you know, the schooling system, first of all, was free. So that that's a phenomenal thing when you come to think of it. It's it then it's not on the level of say public school system here. It was all the way through evening if you wanted. So any clubs, whether it was sports, arts, science in the afternoon, it was all free. And so that's why also there was quite a wide pool of talent coming out of Eastern Europe. And when if you watched Olympics, you know, it was quite competitive then. And as I said, partially it was driven by the fact that that it was part of a the Cold War kind of thinking as well. But also, what was what was good, that I think the, the communists were kind of smart in a way that they knew that they cannot pay people much, so they had to give them different pleasures. They had to educate the people really well, so they're good workforce. And um, to keep their minds occupied, they give us programs, right? So things were for free. So while people couldn't travel, couldn't have what people had in the West, we had things like, you know, free education, free medical system. We had three camps you know what equivalent of uh, boy scouts type of things you know um we had quite intense military training which for boys it's 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 like you know it's equivalent of modern i guess video games but they're alive you know with military involved and you go out and you play with, with small grenades and run around and shoot air guns and stuff like that so for, for boys it's cool so that was really cool and we had a lot of time for each other and a lot of freedom, you know, schools, basically there was only one school that you could go to, which was the closest to your house, which I believe is very close to what the current uh, school system in Finland is about. So you basically went to school with your buddies. So you were well connected. You went with people from different levels of life and different, you know, with different backgrounds. So we learned how to deal with each other. And, and after school, we either went to clubs or we went home, which was very safe anyway. And we played outside for hours and hours, which is which is a big challenge in today's society. So we had fun. So that was a great thing, I think. What was the language learning? Was this in Slovakian? Did you learn Russian or English or German, other languages? Well, in a nutshell, it was Russian as a foreign language, obviously, because that was the mother Russia kind of thing that they were presenting to us. But um, from what I recall, not just how I felt, but also my friends, we were not really keen on because it's like with anything with, with people in general and particularly with kids and even animals, when the push approach doesn't work, right? It has to be pulled, but it was more on the push side. So we didn't really like learning Russian. The The good part was that it was part of the Slavic group of languages, even though it was, it was on the opposite side of the spectrum, it was easy for us to learn in a way. So we learned it. Now, the verb a few courses in English and German, but you have to remember that 
any anything related to the West, West of Central Europe, so to speak, as was enemy because it had different ideology, right? And any ideology, including say even Christianity and so on, was competing with the communist ideas and ideology. So so there wasn't a lot of that. But there were some people who were able to speak German and English a little bit. But again, for the communists that was an opportunity or they saw it as an opportunity for people to connect with the West, which they didn't want even more. So it was quite limited. And then Merrick, what was the how old were you when the Soviet bloc collapsed and uh, the Czech Republic broke apart. Yeah, so it all started with the Berlin Wall, which was 1989, if I remember. And then, and soon after the, the the Velvet Revolution, which started in Prague in the former Czechoslovakian capital, was that was basically a uh, students' kind of small gathering, and and they got pushed back quite heavily by 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 uh, by the police and. Suddenly, you know, this is still questioned till date whether it was the communist managed exit or it was it was just really as intense as it was. But but suddenly there were videotapes being distributed of that sort of oppression of that uprising of the students in the Prague in Prague to all schools. And and what happened was we all said in uh in our in whether it was you know cafeterias or somewhere and we basically said no we started jingling keys because somebody came up with it telling the communists okay it's time to for you to give us the keys from the country and that was when i was 14. so the difference between say how it happens how the how the overturn of the communist regimes happened in other countries in in slovakia czechoslovakia it happened through through um young people and and then artists joined us and so we're out in the street at the age of 14, 15, 16, which is interesting. Then Merrick, how did you get, did you immediately then move or have interest in the West then? Or what was that like? No, absolutely not. No, well, we of course, we were hungry. So we wanted to get to know things. We wanted to have things. And we did have a little bit of a veg because the communists did have exchange programs for some of the workers going to say like Libya, you know, sort of that, that, communist regime friendly countries and they were paid in what they call bonds not not equivalent of the bonds that you know here but the, it was just basically a fake currency that they could control and then there were special special stores that had like levi jeans and all that kind of stuff so if you had the bonds you could go and buy stuff there was maybe one per bigger city or town um so we knew what the taste what, what you know what the vest tastes like and smells like but you know, when when things when when the borders opened up, obviously we were still second class citizens. We were not part of the EU. We were just sort of kind of between. And the West was very cautious. They didn't want to get flooded, but with Eastern Europeans, so it wasn't as easy from the beginning. But yeah, I mean, we were all interested. I was a rock climber at that time, so I switched very quickly from from swimming to rock climbing, and that took me around Europe. We used to take old cars and just drive them around Europe climb and then go to the seaside ocean side and that was the first time when i kind of uh tasted the ocean and i started kind of looking out thinking yeah this is what i like i want to swim in the ocean and then what just to iterate how did you end up in the u.s then what is your trajectory there i i maybe we can talk yeah. about japan too and your interest in that it's all kind of connected so um it was i i did finish my first master's in Slovakia, was in the Japanese intercultural communication and diplomacy uh, related, it was master's and bachelor's degree together. So I was about 24 
and I finished that. I learned English when I was 18. So I went to a, a, a language school, very intense language school. So for a year, I didn't go to university. And I just focused on learning English because I could see a lot of opportunities in Eastern Europe. Um, just to describe what was happening around then, which is about three, four years after after the, we changed the system, or we started changing the system because it's still sort of changing in Eastern Europe. But um, everything that you can imagine looking out of the window now, wherever you are, you can just look outside and, and imagine that everything belongs to the country today. And tomorrow, everything is available to anybody who will raise their hand. Like, I want this. The, the problem was that people were very risk adverse because obviously they lived on, you know, salary that would barely get them by month to month with how it was controlled by the communists. So even if you had a chance to buy a factory or to buy your convenience store looking like small shop, mom and pops looking like shop or, or anything, or say car shop, um, very few people would actually raise their hand. So there was a lot of activity among just a few small group of people who would participate in what was called privatization process and basically getting assets and so on someone for free. So that's where I felt that I need to learn English. And, and, and at 18, when I was being asked by my friends to help them with joint ventures and so on, I knew that English was something that was going to set me free from and, and allow me traveling allowed me to travel around the world so that was the first thing and second step i took that master's and bachelor's together so at 24 when i was about to graduate i was approached by a japanese company wait, wait merrick one That's, second so yeah. you're 18 learning english and then you choose uh -huh. to do a career in japanese where does the interest in japan come from i mean japan is kind of a far away <laughs> very very far place from Slovakia, so I'm just curious where that came from and where that yeah, how much time do we have? But, um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so originally, I always wanted to be an MD, a medical doctor. Right? Um, it, it happens that my older brother is a surgeon and he's traveled around the world and and he, he's the smart one in the family. So watching him, um, I kind of started to have second thoughts. But anyway, when I was about 18, for some reason, I decided not to pursue a medical degree and um, started thinking about what to do. And, and so the next one was obviously alternative medicine. And in Slovakia, there were not many people. Actually, there was only one really famous people person who did uh, acupuncture and, and similar things. And she was quite famous in even in the Chinese community that was very limited, but was in Slovakia and also in the, in the scientific world. But the problem was that she would not teach anybody. And um, so I, I spent about six months. I liked the idea of, of being close to the real medicine, but doing something alternative. And we always had, you know, our eyes on Asia at that time, and particularly Japan. Uh, the view of Japan was very different from the rest of Asia. There was Asia for us, and then there was Japan. And that's, I, I find that that's quite similar across the world because Japan of the sophistication because where they were during the bubble era and, and the development and how they were able to turn the economy and environment and everything around from the 70s to the 80s. So the late 80s, it was economic power. It was, it was culturally very interesting. It was sophisticated. And we also had this running joke that if the communists were really 
to look for the ideal country for communism, that would be Japan, because probably with the right leader, people would, you know, they were told like, okay, from tomorrow, you're going to do this. People would just go high and could follow. So there was also interest there, but with the alternative medicine, it wasn't really still connecting to that extent. But so when I actually finally got that lady to agree to become my tutor, um, a fate took control and, and she suddenly passed away two weeks later, sudden death. And I was, that was an eye opener and kind of an, a closing to to my whole MD kind of medical field career chapter. I just thought, yeah, that's a high calling, telling me that maybe not pursue. And my uh, climbing partner at that time, just several days later, just out of the blue, came up, came with a book on Japanese characters. That was probably the first one printed in in Czech, and I think Czech, Czech and Japanese on Japanese characters and. He just said, well, I just saw this in a, in a store. For some reason, I thought of you and I bought it. Here it is. Deal with it. I don't know why I bought it, but here it is. I just thought of you. And, and he just threw it in front of me. So I started looking through the book. And then that, that, that was probably the moment that when things started connecting with Japan and interest in Japan, when I decided to depart from the medical field. And I just said, okay, I'm going to go for for business. But if I do business, I want to make sure that it's something that will give me a skill set that I will not have to look for work, but work will look for me. So I started looking around more. And I realized that actually the first foreign investor in Slovakia was from Japan. It was a car manufacturer or car parts manufacturer, quite a large one with over 100,000 employees around the world. And they created a joint venture with a Slovak partner. And knowing, and I did a little bit more research and I, and I actually learned that there are not many, if any people in Slovakia who in fact speak Japanese. I thought, well, okay, this is it. You know, I'm interested in, in Asia. It's still, it's still a nation that is closer to human side of things uh, than the Western cultures are. And um, also it's something that can give me an advantage in, in Slovakia. So I looked for school. First, I found out that, that the only school was in Prague in Czech Republic and the oldest school, the uh, Charles University. I did actually apply. I went there and I quit after a month when I learned that basically the teachers took advantage of the market, that there were Japanese companies coming to Prague and to the Czech Republic first because obviously they were closer to the west of the German border. And so they took all the gigs and I felt that they were not teaching us enough probably at least that's what I felt that they didn't want to create more competition around them. So I didn't like that approach. I left and luckily um, Slovakia and Itochu Corporation had an agreement that they would invest money and they would start the same thing in Slovakia. So first time ever they, they announced that there would be a, a master's degree in, in Japanese and they connected with intercultural communications and diplomacy. And I was lucky enough to get in first. It was supposed to be six people, but we ended up being, two guys and 18 girls for six years as a cohort group. And um, we had some Slovak teachers, but we mainly had a Japanese teacher who was a very interesting descent of samurai, one of the um, fighting samurai clan families. So her whole family was very traditional in, in education and approach to life. And I've learned, I was very lucky to learn a lot from her. And that's how I connected myself to Japan and the whole Asian part of myself. Fascinating. So your friend, if he hadn't bought you that kanji book, I mean, your life might be different. Um, Absolutely. I mean, what an amazing, and then at what level, I mean, there's the N5 to N1 
what level did you get to with that kind of Japanese level? Well, the school was intense. It was, it was very intense. And as I said, you know, imagine that you have a samurai top woman. Plus the Soviet <laughs> being a teacher. kind of encouragement. Yeah, you have. Yeah, she was she was extremely strict. And she also happened to work as a as an announcer, TV announcer for many years. So she, she was just impeccable. The, the, the cultural background, education, upbringing was just super strict, very traditional Japanese. <clears throat> but also her skills were, were great. And basically the way that she approached us, the very first day she said in Japanese, which was very ironic, she says, it's more important to learn how to speak in English with Japanese mind than to speak Japanese with a foreigner or English mind in order to survive and, and, and get by in Japan. And so they kind of sent a message on what she was going to teach us, that Japan is not about the language, but it's about the social cultural aspect of things and understanding how the culture works, that there's much deeper side of of the whole culture um and it's not just in japan i believe that in general in in asia it's quite the case so so that was that was one thing and the second thing was basically she came to us and said mike this is just between us but i only have two students and mind you again i said that there were 18 girls and two guys because again how culturally this position that she her her mission was to bring in bring up two guys who can lead the business side of things and the relationship side of things because japan at that time and then probably even now still is largely patriarchal i think it's the right word um so yeah so she put a lot of energy into us and 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 the third thing was merrick if you don't come to eat dinner at my house and she was married with two kids one of who was actually our classmate she said you will not finish this school and that was again another extended way of teaching me the culture and, and being part of a family, see how to eat, you know, learn how to eat, how to prepare, how to function within the within the Japanese society. So I was very, very lucky in that sense. And then when was your first visit to Japan? That was that? I think, yeah, that was during my study. So the studies were six years. It's quite intense. Um, and just to finish answering your question, uh, we were, we went all the way. So six years, you can imagine, it's a lot. Yes, and uh, first three, four years, I could not put a full sentence together. And the reason was because we set a really broad base for the language. As you may know, Japanese has many different levels of language, whether it's the children's language, women, and then and, and the honorific, and, and so on and so on. So we were basically learning. It's like building a a a big wall and you start setting the, the foundations and you put the first level of bricks, second level of bricks. But in order to be able to complete sentence, you have to reach, say, I don't know, a floor at least, right? And it took us, because we're, we're going on the full extent of the language from left to right, we're building the vocabulary, we're building the, the grammar that is different with the different levels of language and the socio-linguistic uh, aspects as well of, of that and how you pick the language that you use or the different types of language when you come when you use it and also how you behave in those contexts. So it took us about three to four years when we finally were able to, when it all rounded up for us and we were able to speak. But we, once we were able to speak, we were able to speak on all different levels. And that was just an amazing thing for me. So um, when I was, so again, is when I was about fourth grade, um, we were... We were quite there, but and with kanji as well, we we learned over two thousand kanji handwriting, obviously as well, because of the technology not being available too much then there. So 
we were quite advanced and then we started passing all the exams. So we went all the EQ. We didn't, we, we went straight to EQ. We did not, we were, I think we were exempt or something. I don't remember, but then we also went to Budapest for that. And we also passed the Monbusho test, which is the Ministry of Education in Japan. And that's geared towards Japanese who try to get certified on a higher level of Japanese sort of command of the language. And that was by the end of the sixth year. Crazy, um, especially since you're studying not in Japan, so you don't have the, you know, the resource base to have a full immersion. So that's actually even more challenging. It was very interesting to first time travel to Japan, which is to answer your second question. I it was when I was in my fifth grade, I think, I was asked to join the Ministry of Culture of Slovakia because Slovakia is known for what they call Biennale of Fantasy, fantasy, and it's uh, a once a year an exhibit or exhibit of um of children's book illustrations from all around the world the best of them and uh, apparently some group of japanese came along and they really loved it so they went back home they got some funding they built a gallery specifically for that and once they built it they came to slovakia and said look we build this gallery please let us bring this exhibition to the japanese children and people and so they made an exemption and, and they did it and so they asked me to be on tour with them and then bring that exhibition to japan so that was my first time in japan and i freaked out on the plane because i had never met any korean people before and i had no idea what korean sounds like and i had no idea what the differences are but i was sitting on a flight straight flight from vienna to to i think osaka the first first time and there was a group of young people sitting in front of me and i didn't know they were koreans but they were speaking and i don't know if, if you know but they're there's some words that sound like Japanese, but you cannot just make out of it what it is. So I'm sitting there, I'm listening. I'm like, oh my goodness, is this what I'm supposed to be interpreting from? Because I had no idea that what they were talking about. So this is real Japanese. So I've just lived in a bubble for this whole five years. And this is just not good at all. Luckily, to my surprise, when I came out of the plane and people came, the real Japanese, I could understand everything. And, and I just, I was so confused. So I asked my my friend who was daughter of my teacher and like, why are these people? Why do they speak such strange accent? It's like, oh, because they're Korean. So it was it was it was an, a very interesting kind of connection with you know being the the lab mouse or mice coming out to the real world, like and realizing that you know okay you're fine, even though we were in the lab kind of conditions, under lab conditions for five years, but you will kind of get by. And then it just started all connecting, obviously. In Japan. What was the culture shock like at that moment? None. Um, oh, we were gods. We were gods in in Japan. You know, like this is this is going back to 90s, going back yeah. twenty five years, like nineties, right? So obviously, I was American, American, right? So that was one thing that that you know there, there was nobody like anybody who was white, who was tall, long legs, and big nose was American. And it was just it was interesting because we were never superstars, you know. We're the underdog in Eastern Europe. So coming out to Japan and all of a sudden everybody, literally people coming to me left and right, particularly when we were in in Shikoku because that's where, where the where the in Kochi where the exhibit was taken. Um, they were not used to foreigners at that time at all, on a uh, sort of unofficial side of things. So. They're coming and asking me if they can touch my nose, if they can, you know, measure their legs against me. And it was it was very interesting. So that was first cultural slogan. The second was food. It was just for me coming from Eastern Europe, where really the choices are quite quite limited. 
right? Because again, we didn't have import of things. We didn't have good fish. We only had carp and stuff like that, you know, like stinky um, pond, rib, pond fish and stuff like that. So when I went there and I, and I started smelling and tasting the new foods, it was just amazing. And it will stay in my head and mind forever, I think. That was the biggest thing. Everything else was very cool because, like I mentioned in the beginning, and as we said, that we thought that Japan was the, the best country for communists to take over if they were ever, if some evil, evil communists were to, to come and take over. It was exactly like that because it was very similar to what we grew up in. It's very systematic. It's very process-based. So if you follow the process and you don't stick out of the line, you know, it, it's very easy to navigate. But the difference between the Eastern Europe and Japan was that it was so sophisticated and to quite a great extent free. You know, there was nobody kind of putting it back in line. So it was very enjoyable for me. It was just it just coming back home, but very sophisticated, modern, clean, and nice home. So that was, that was when, I don't know if it's a cultural shock, but it was a very nice kind of realization that, yeah, this is, this is a country I could live in. No, I think the thing that's so great about Japan is that it's such an alternative system that works in such a great way. So it's such a counter to the West and to other models. You know, yeah, obviously, so if you go to India or something, it's a different system entirely, but it's harder to appreciate at the first glance, that yes. culture, for instance. Yeah, so if you don't have problem with following the system, it, it's actually extremely easy system to live in. It's only when you start questioning things. But, but again, being in a, a developed society, though it's still Asian society, and I apologize if it if it if it sounds bad, but um, there's still limitation. But it's it it's also open, right? It's been it's been under influence of the Western society, and they've been really good at taking over quite a few systems, like accounting system is based on Germany, legal system is based on Germany very close and so on and so on. So you can see that and thinking as well. So you can fall out of the system and you can be a foreigner. You can, and, and I actually apply it quite often. So I can be very Japanese, I believe, and I can also be very foreigner just to kind of push things through, initiatives through. So that, that's a great part of Japan that you don't get shot for that, you know, that you actually still have that. that well, most that, of my uh, Japanese sims that, yeah, it's maybe easier to be a, a gaijin, a foreigner in Japan than actually being a Japanese, unless you're really willing to break the rules. Yes, just, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, I, yeah, it's selective passing, especially with your language skills. You can become a foreigner if you need to or become fully Japanese and keigo or whatever you need to, according to the mm -hmm. setting. Let, let's go back, Merrick, to your swimming for a second before we go back to sure. Japan. Um, I, I can see how you have the endurance now to you know, do a daily practice of swimming and tell me about your latest adventure swimming and your, you know, congratulations on achieving your goal, but tell us about that. Well, that was, um, so we called it swim around Oahu. So Oahu is an island here in Hawaii. Um, it's about 135 miles to circumnavigate swim. The island is never, it was never done before, except for one surfer who claimed doing it, but it was sort of a combination of crossing certain sections by a boat and having fins on and so and so on. So it was never really done properly. And I think he did it in some sort of effort to bring attention to ocean and, and what's happening basically with the whole habitat. But um, what what I do is I, well, it's not necessarily practice for me. It's it's more like, it's like my shrine in a way. You could describe it to people going to shrine that, you know, I just need to clear my head. I work through all different time zones here in Hawaii. And so it happens that I work till late or 
work in the morning. So I do need to get switch out of things. And and the ocean is just the best thing. And yes, people tell me that how can you? And it's really it, I knew afraid of sharks. I knew afraid of jellies or the currents or the boats. And but that's 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 the thing that you know we probably we probably don't think about the risks we take that when we sit in a car and we on on H1 highway driving and, and when you actually pay attention to how many accidents there are and how many people die a year on H1. And it's just as one short stretch of highway in Hawaii that has 45 miles an hour speed limit. And you put it into perspective how many people die swimming in the ocean who are actual swimmers. I'm not talking about the tourists who don't know what they're doing. It's fairly safe, I think, statistically. And particularly if you, if you practice a lot. But it's it's the mental kind of cleansing that you get you know because obviously if you're a normal person you do feel fears you do feel anxieties you know there there are all different kinds of stimulus in, in the ocean and just like this morning you know when the waves are coming at you from left and right to the point where there's absolutely no boats no surface so the ocean was very interesting this morning and, and the winds are supposed to be 50 to 80 miles a day an hour uh today so the ocean really is out there but um when we decided to do this swim, you know, we used to do, and I still do from time to time, uh, channel crossings. And the closest ones I've done are here in Hawaii, islands of Maui and Lanai and Molokai. It's a triangle of islands, approximately all between about 10 to 12 miles, depending on the line that you can you can hold, and which is decided by the currents and, and the waves and the conditions and wind on that day when you swim. But um, it's a project. It's always a project because you have to plan, you have to have a boat, you have to travel somewhere. And I happen to have 11, soon to be 12, and then eight-year-old children at home, and I like to spend time with them. So it's it's been difficult for me to take the time away, particularly when I have to travel to Japan and other parts of the world for business. So I came up with this project to, I was just looking around, seeing on the beach and thinking, well, I have this greatest swim ever here nobody's done it before and i get to know my island i'll get there's some challenging parts obviously what i call the corners of the island so this is a sticking sticky you know sticking out parts of the island which um from what i researched before we, we did the swim are always challenges because we're in the middle of the pacific so if you really look at hawaii and you look at the current map the waters hitting those corners can be pretty pretty crazy so I knew that we would have enough adrenaline doing that. And then also the, the most appealing part was that that we can do it on our own time. We don't need a boat and we can sort of do a pioneer kind of approach where it was just two guys, two cars. And we'll try to see how far we can go supporting ourselves, bringing water in our suits and some gels and just go. So plan ahead and do the swim. So we ended up um, taking 24 swims to cover the 135 miles over 72 hours total to swim, circumnavigate Oahu between it was March and November last year. Um, why it took so long? It's because uh, my partner happens to be a, a very busy OBGYN surgeon at the Queen's Hospital here. And also I travel a lot. I spend almost four months out of that time outside of the country. So just physically impossible. But whenever we were in the country and we had time, we just took off and we would swim. Average swims would be about six miles at a time. So it was pretty interesting. 
How did those compare and challenge towards the channel crossings? Was this easier in terms of swimming or harder? Or I'm just curious. Oh, it depends on challenge. It depends on the challenge uh, on the channels. Sorry, um, you have say North Channel or you have uh, Cook Strait in New Zealand, right? Which is very challenging because of the currents and particularly because of the temperature. So for people coming out of Hawaii, it's a super challenging swim, and it's you it cannot compare because you would have to use cold baths and I I ice baths and so on to to adapt your body to cold water environment so it, it really is difficult but, but on the contrary we had just we had guys coming from europe who were trying to break a um do a double kaivi crossing which is uh, the channel between uh, honolulu and molokai 42 kilometers one way so it'd be almost almost 100 kilometer swim they wanted to do a relay both ways they give up after the first hour, basically saying that the ocean is too hot. They could not breathe because they, they, they're exactly the opposite type of swimmer. So for them, Hawaii was challenging. For me, I could not swim the North Channel without actually relocating there for a couple of months and getting used to that temperature. So so it's hard to compare on that level. In terms of intensity, I think Hawaii has different type of water, first of all. So really the ocean is it's just it's an element, much stronger element compared to, say, even La Manche channel, channel, right? Because you have boats and you have all the other kind of challenges there and you have currents, but the ocean doesn't get as crazy as here. And the difference between swimming also a channel and around the islands, which at times we would get mile and even more off away from the shore, off the shore, because we would need to avoid all the shallows and all the outside reefs. Um, the ocean can get really, really, really rough currents pushing the left and right and and you cannot just okay say that's it i'm gonna go in because the coastline is rigid uh there, there's sharp coral reefs sticking out and there's big waves so you'll you'll get torn up torn into pieces if you just decided to go at any point so you really need to know what you're doing you have to be ready in your mind kind of well i just have to go through it and and see how far i go and so that's what, what was very interesting and how it, how in a different way it compares and doesn't compare to to channels. And plus also we didn't have any support, which was another kind of um, specific um, condition that we set on ourselves that we do not want to have a boat. One was from logistical perspective because having a boat, relying on a boat would probably slow down the project and that. But plus also we just wanted to try how far can people go on their own? And so we try to do a study, you know, how much water can you bring in your, in, in your suit and how far does it get you and are you okay? Because often we swim in the morning. We say we would start at 6 a.m. in the morning and we would have to be at work or Steve would have to be at work operating at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So we would just go for eight-mile swim somewhere around the island. It was interesting. What was the – was there any points that you wanted to give up or – I'm just curious, was there any danger points that you really felt like this is not safe or your family was starting to worry or everything was... Well, possible? starting with the family, I'm, I'm half of the swim we did in secret. Because <laughs> in secret, because uh, knowing that if, if I, I knew that if I told my wife Naoko that we were going to do that, I would probably have a, a bigger challenge there. So we we had to sneak out a few times and sort of, you know, we have we had we set long swim days for practice. So we used those days as a cover-up for us to do the first half of the swim. So the first, I don't know, 60, 70 miles we did like that. 
Uh, dangerous, yes. There were days there was hives of advisory where we had 20-foot Hawaiian scale waves and we, we had to swim out and swim in and that was, those were kind of interesting days. All those waves are not a big deal because once you swim out and you're behind the break, it's not a big deal. But there were days when it was very, very windy. But I think from all the different parts and people ask me, you know, about Kaena Point, which is the westmost point where it drops off to say 3,000 feet and, and north and south kinds meet and so on and so on. It was nothing compared to when we were crossing the Honolulu Harbor, which was our first day swim. We did not realize that, yeah, we actually have to swim through a channel where the big ships, you know, come in and go out of. And when we got there, there was this huge sign, sign of size of a building, basically saying it's illegal to be there. You cannot be in the water. And we were there after six miles swim needed to cross the channel and we had maybe one more k or two more k to sand island and we saw ships on the left and right and the channel is pretty wide there was a there was head current that we had and it was very scary so we're gonna go then i asked steve to wait and the ship that was out big container ship that was way out looked like it's far and it looks like they go really slow but once they turn in they come really fast you know and it, and it's really scary because I was, you know, I, I never swam past giant ship like that. And, you know, I didn't know if it can pull me under or not, you know, and so on and so on. So it was very scary, particularly when we waited for the right moment, we thought, and we started swimming and we were in the middle of the channel. We see a big ship turning out because the Honolulu Harbor is an L-shaped harbor. So there's this little street stretch and then it turns left. So we don't see. And as we were approaching middle of the channel, we saw a big ship turning straight and coming straight on us. And so it was, it was, that was the scariest part, I think. I mean, of course, there were parts where we saw there's a giant shark next to us or we saw something, but that doesn't really bother you unless you really get in trouble. Um, we had a lot of man of war kind of days when we were stung left and right. But that, again, it, depending on how your body reacts, and we were both lucky that we could, we reacted okay. I mean, it gets on your nerves and, and your system and it hurts and it's really bothering you, but... It actually, I found out that it can help me sometimes focus because I get my mind off swimming and I have something to just just, just work through. And, and so it helps us a lot, particularly on the windward side, which is known for that. How did so you even today, yeah, sorry, retain, um, do you have any tips for remaining calm or how did you just not, you know, have anxiety break your rhythm or what's your tips and practices for that? I think it's breathing, um, but um, it's when you set a goal, it's good to set a big goal in anything you do. So it helps your mind focus. And I think that that applies to business, family, and even swims, you know, and in this case, like if you know, you know, what we did this case, what we had to do is we had two cars. So we would, we would meet at the finish point. We would decide, okay, today we're going to swim. 12 kilometers, for example, right? So this is our exit point. And we would have to meet there, park one of our cars, typically would be mine. And then we would hop into the other car and drive all the way along the shore, the 12 kilometers to, to the starting point where we left off the last time. You realize that driving 12 kilometers along the shore, it's actually pretty distant, very long distance. You don't realize that when you when you see, when you, you know, when you see, when you say do, the same distance or 15k even distance in a channel you see the islands but you cannot really tell the difference or the distance but when you drive by the coastline how it's you know 
and it's straight line, mind you, as well. So when you drive, it's actually even more because you're going around and around and around those little, you know, bays and and so on. So your mind is really like, oh, okay, I do need to be focused, and you stay focused until you're there. And also, you don't know if you can find the landing because it all looks the same. By the way, once you're like one one mile off the shore, and you have waves between you and the shore, you can't even tell what the shore looks like quite often. So you really stay focused. So I think that having a big goal, bigger than you, kind of helps you focus and, and get over things. So you're just like, no, just keep your head down. And um, a friend of mine who is very um, achieved swimmer has done the Ocean 7 and has the, probably the fastest time still Hungarian swimmer, Attila. He basically, what he does, he says, just when I cannot swim, I just remind myself to swim. So just put your head down, just swim. There's nothing else. Don't think about it. Don't make it very complicated because once you start analyzing things, you can go all different routes, right? So I think keeping the message simple for you when you need to focus is, is what gets us by. And also ocean is another good thing is ocean is, uh, it's, 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 it's like, a, like watching a documentary, you know, like national geographic. So there's always something that can get on your mind. You can look at, you know, if, and the visibility in, in Hawaii, I would say 60 to 70% was, was good. And in some cases, it was, it was wonderful. What so, stroke are you using? The whole majority is freestyle? or It's freestyle. It's freestyle. Yeah, that, that's the most relaxed, the fastest. Yeah. And and it works best with, with the currents and waves and so on. Did you and your partner engage in any kind of other physical training or weight training or yoga or anything else to build up for this? or? No, we've been swimming for years now, right? And when we swim together as partners, we're very comfortable with each other. Um, actually, what happened to my friend, He, his his shoulder was in a really bad condition. So he was scheduled for, for a surgery and it ended up being three different procedures, reattaching part of his biceps and, and, and this and that and that and shaving off some calcifications. And I don't know, I don't know what, it's basically two reattachments and so on. Then he swam through this whole thing with, in that condition so we couldn't really do much more well but having said that though he's quite a maniac and so he participated in the spartan race as you may know this once a year i think it's cooler ranch the ranch they they organize this spartan race which is three different events one of them is 10 miler five miler and whatever whatever and it's obstacle course through muds and all kinds of crazy obstacles and it was a weekend and he did it without much of a training which kind of made his situation with his shoulder even worse, but he did it, which people say that you have to be world-class athlete to be able to pass through those things because it's quite crazy and very particular certain exercise types. But yeah, he did that. I didn't, I, I just started running, but that's for my goal for this year. So um, I was just purely focused on swimming. So we do stretching, we do kind of exercise before and so on, but swimming was, this was an ocean swimming kind of thing for us. We didn't necessarily go for the time and you know speed it was more on focus and experience and uh, kind of learning about what the human body can do in mind so we want to focus on that aspect of it how did it feel to complete it as anything big um i'm sure you've experienced that though. people have experienced the, the feelings before this i think first time was my university after six years i was so looking forward to, to the big day until the big day came and then it's like okay this is it you know, so it was actually funny because the last swim was the first swim when we could actually choose the time and the current. So it was great conditions. And I told my family, Steve told his family, we told our friends we'll be finishing. 
And we said, well, maybe around one o'clock we'll be back at Kaimana Beach. But the conditions were so good that we were, we were just flying. So we were stopping, we were stalling, and we still finished hour and a half ahead of the, the projected time, which is which is what shows how conditions in the oceans can change everything. And it wasn't a long swim. It was only about five-mile swim. We still finished an hour and a half earlier. So when we finished, there was nobody on the beach. It was funny that we started alone and we finished alone, which for me, it was symbolic and it was really good because it was just my idea. I wanted to do it. So actually, Steve initially said that he didn't want to do it. It wasn't a good idea. And 24 hours later, he called me, okay, can we start tomorrow? But I, I did it for just myself to entertain myself and to explore. So not having many people around was was okay for me. But um, it was kind of sad because we've done it and doing it again will not be the same. So I like to explore. I like to do new things. How did and yes, the, I could yeah, how, swim it how, the other way. But How did the rest of the... I'm not familiar with the ocean open ocean swimming community what did they were they excited by this was this a new challenge for others to participate in or how did they well, respond we, well some of them ex- responded in a great way obviously because they know those who know they know that it, it is not an easy thing to do and from for different reasons you know the people are afraid obviously people know that it's physically challenging people know that it's mentally and physically challenging people know that it's just logistically it's it's a nightmare you know because you have to figure out everything and and, and there are parts that really people have never swam before apparently so it's it's just not easy on very many levels and and i think the most difficult level is that you need to find a crazy enough partner who is at the same pace as you and crazy enough as you who will actually stay with you the whole way and be excited enough the whole way to go and do it with you. So people who have swam and they know that swimming is an individual sport, even though we're swimming groups is also always individual sport. So if what we achieved with Steve, we made it a team sport because you have to rely on each other. Seriously, you do when you do that, particularly when you're offshore. So, and with no board, Built around or anybody around, basically no lifeguards. So, so yeah, some of them reacted really well. Some of them did not, and I think it's just a natural reaction because also I don't know if it's envy or it's just like yeah, whatever you know we don't. And and we also kept it secret. So people, some people felt unhappy about the fact that we kept it secret from people, but we didn't know whether we were going to finish it or not. You know how it was going to go, if it's even possible for two people without both if it's safe enough and so on. So we decided to communicate it out to the community two or three swims before we were finished. So that was also that that, that kind of reaction that, you know, yeah, you want to be special, so we didn't let us know and so, and so on. But that's okay, because for me, we didn't do it for fame or, or any recognition at all. And then, Merrick, what's the next uh, big goal in swimming or running or anything? I don't want to be secretive, but there are some goals, but I don't want to jinx them, so I'll keep them. But there are some islands involved around us. Not that, great. That, Maybe you're going to and Maui or whatnot. We'll yeah. it. You, you, almost, you almost hit it there. There's one more. more so, right. yeah, there's, 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 there's a lot of interesting stuff around us. But, again, that, in, that introduces that element that we were able to avoid by swimming on Oahu. That is that we can stay at home and do it in sections. Now, if you do any of the other outer islands, we have to 
kind of focus that effort into say a week, which will make it more interesting um, achievement if you, if you do achieve it uh, from the professional perspective or point of view, because it will be a, you know, it will, will probably be able to swim longer or do a, a, a two swims a day. So instead of doing eight miles a day, we'll be doing 16 miles a day. So we'll split it in half and we come out, we get water and we go back in the water and swim. And so we finish double the, the distance and we can go every single day so we can finish much much sooner so we can basically do what what we did with Honolulu or with Oahu we did in 24 swims maybe you can do it in in After. less than two weeks time you know Merrick what kind of diet are you following that's thanks to my wife um very diverse um I'm a rabbit naturally but unfortunately I'm from Europe so I like gluten as well which is not a good thing for me but I love vegetables a lot so and i also found out with these swims that when i had uh veg i'm not a vegetarian i do need meat and all sorts of protein but when i swam i found out that when i had uh vegetable protein the night before the swims were just so much easier so my body was just so much lighter so much well responsive and i had no pains so that that that's something to say to vegetables but being who i am i'm not ready or willing to be completely vegetarian so um uh, my wife takes care of the diet at, at home not to say that i don't cook i love to cook and i participate as much as i can but when it comes to choices and what we eat she she diversifies what we eat so when it comes to protein we have say meat twice a week we have uh, vegetable protein like beans and stuff twice three times a week we have fish two times three times a week a lot of a lot of salads. I don't need eat a lot of carbs in the evening, but I compensate with some some bread in the morning. But I do not eat breakfast, for example, and that's a residual from my swimming times when I was young. That I used to do early morning sessions, so I didn't eat before I would go to school and have to wait for a snack time. So I wake up in the morning and I don't need to eat. So part of the, I guess, what people call. Um, diet so what is it called interim fasting or something yeah, fasting. yeah so naturally i do it because i don't eat breakfast so we have dinner with kids earlier so we try to eat by seven and then i wouldn't eat until i'm done with the swim sometimes i eat until 11 naturally i don't feel like and i usually would start with an apple and a lot of water yeah. going back to hawaii you called it your island what's your history with hawaii when did you and your family choose to come here so i came here from new york after 9 11 so i didn't mention that but i actually lived in new york that was prior to meeting my my wife naoko um and that was when i finished working for a japanese company in slovakia i, I moved with their job into new york city but unfortunately the project wasn't very good so i ended up closing the job down right before 9 11 and so when 9 11 hit the towers in the town and there was absolutely no chance to find a job for an eastern european without education in the us and a lot to learn about the culture and how things work so i picked up um i decided that i do first i needed visa second i wanted to sync up with the us on the business side so i found out that there's um there's an mba program in hawaii that was ranked among top 20 in international business and particularly with focus on Asia Pacific. And then there's a chance to transfer to top universities in Japan. 
So that was my plan. And I came out to Hawaii in 2002. So I did my GMATs in New York right after 9-11. <clears throat> and I came out in January 2002 to Hawaii. First time ever. I'd never been in Hawaii. I, I had some image of Hawaii, but not really. It was very blurry. Kind of didn't have a particular picture. So I came out here, borrowed some money, came out here and started going to school. And that was my first connection with Hawaii. Now, logistically, it didn't work out as well because um, my relationship that brought me over to Hawaii as well didn't work out. So I had to figure out my own life and kind of stand up on my feet. So I ended up finding a job on, on campus or at the University of Hawaii that gave me tuition waiver, which allowed me to stay in Hawaii and enjoy Hawaii. And that was also the first time when I connected with the ocean because I was extremely poor. I was living off $8.50 hourly wage and on top of my tuition waiver, which gave me about $900. Forget about surviving today with that money. But I had incredible time during that time. I was able to find a roommate. So, you know, those good times were where you, you, you would pay $4.50 for sharing a two-bedroom apartment with somebody and going to school and and you know, working and studying. And then I was asked to actually lead executive programs for the School of Business, which is ironic, being a regular program student, managing and hiring uh, the same teachers for executive programs. But it was a very interesting experience connecting with the business community and the uh, teachers community at the College of Business as well. And at the end of the two-year period, I decided to transfer to Japan to Keio Business School, which is one of the top schools for business and just general in Japan. Although, unfortunately, on and on the world ranking list, they're, they're somewhere around 40, 50, 60. So they're not very significant in the global terms. But in Japan, and the social aspect of that was, was quite interesting and meeting people was good. So that took me to Japan for about 10 years, but I kept relationship with Hawaii uh, through friends, obviously, who I, I, I met here, local friends, and also through Ironman and, and triathlon races, which is which was, was one of the ways for me to deal with the stress in Japan. I never wanted to be a cyclist, and, but again, another friend, like just like with Japan, Japan, another friend from Keio Business School said, you should, you run, you swim, you should start doing triathlon, you should buy a bicycle. So... Um, based on that, I ended up, I asked him to buy me a bicycle, which I paid for. And, and three days later, there was a box in my office and I started cycling and I ended up going for 150 mile bike rides from Tokyo to fifth station of Fuji and so on and so on. And that was my kind of way of dealing with stress in Japan. And, but also I, a, a way to bring me back to Hawaii for races like Honu and so on and Maui. Uh, sorry, on the Big Island and also Marathon in Maui and so on and so on. And Marek, once you graduated from Kale, did you start your company then or did you um, work for someone else or what was the evolution there? No, no, I didn't. Um, um, I had to learn how things are done. So uh, um, first I... I started looking, I started doing the usual, right? So I started look, applying for jobs and, and because it was a big name school in Japan, it was considered Ivy League school among the Japanese school, right? So we had interest from the top of industries like Mitsubishi trading company and so on. And they ended up chasing me down and I had interviews with them and they offered me a job to 
potentially in the near future lead the energy business. But then they added that it was energy business with Russia, which kind of hit the wrong spots for me. And I said no. And so I kept looking. And I came across this small private equity firm, which reason really wasn't a private equity, but it was similar structure to that. And it had about five companies in their portfolio. And one of them was a business support firm that um, was supporting foreign companies with coming into Japanese market and setting up their businesses, getting visa and running up accounting payrolls, helping them with all sorts of things. So I thought that was a great opportunity and they offered me a job first as a business development manager. And so I thought, this is great. I will learn how to do business in Japan. And so one day I can just do my own business. And that's exactly what ended up happening. So um, it was around the time when Lehman Shop happened. So pre-Lehman Shop, we were crazy busy. And so we, I took the company. I started as a business development manager. We ended up being general manager and the head of the business within the first seven or eight months because the primary owner's son unfortunately passed away from leukemia, suddenly three-year-old boy. So he had to step out and focus on a charity that he started and, and just support sort of business development himself. And I basically was thrown into the river and had to start swimming with people and taking care of all the business. And But we went, we ended up growing from about 15 people, small shop to about 150 people. So that was great. But unfortunately, I didn't do a home, do my equity homework, which I didn't know existed back then. I trusted people coming from Eastern Europe that when he called me to co-own and manage the business with him in the future, that that would be still the agreement when he comes back one day. And so when he came back two years later and asked me, Merrick, what are we going to do with you? Um, I knew that that was the end for me because he decided to come back and it was too good to be true. We're doing really, really well as business. And that was the trigger when I decided to leave in 2007 and set up my own business, which I'm still running now actively in Japan with close to about 60 people. And now as part of a global group, about 26,000 people around the world. What was the culture shock like for you coming to the U.S. after having studied in, I guess, Japan and, I mean... When you first came to New York, what was that like? Was that? I'm curious what that. That was crazy. Like. That was that was yeah. That was really cultural shock. Um, first of all, you know, we were the the several different levels. First of all, was the cultural shock and the racial aspect of the society. It was it was it was it was incredibly frustrating and and surprising, and I just didn't know what to think of it. You know that we were all learning about. New York being the melting pot and he realized no this is just it's just different bins and there are people thrown into those bins and there's this different different areas like Harlem and Brooklyn and you have different ethnic or cultural groups living there and they're basically separated and, and they do not really work well together and you cannot say this and you cannot say that and it was just that was that was such a block in my mind for quite a while to realize that okay, now you've been thrown into a group of people and there's a set of rules or for how you have to behave and what language you can use. And unfortunately, I was thrown into the white group of people. But coming from an underdog, white part of a society, you know, but getting all the negatives of what the white people did to the society, 
It's just what how I perceived it. It's really weird, and then I have to take the blame for whatever happened in the United States by predecessors of my own race. So, so coming in terms that I have a race, realizing that I have a race, it was really, really, really weird because until then I was considering myself, as they say in Japanese, chikyujin, so like the the globester in a way, right? So the person of the globe, and and just because I was born in Slovakia doesn't mean that I have to live and die in Slovakia. I was born in this on this planet, so I should be able to live anywhere on this planet where I want, in, as long as I respect everything around me and the planet itself. So that was one cultural shock. And the second was the speed of things and the lack of kind of, and this is just a big city thing, right? When, when you have a boy coming from a, from a country you know, that people do not really care about people. And it was just like, come on, come on, come on. You know, that speed and people had to talk and people had to argue. People had to make that point at any expense, kind of. That was a big shock for me. So, and also a reason why I decided to go to school when I mentioned that I needed to sync up. I needed to learn how to communicate, how to argue my point, even though I didn't feel sometimes like arguing. Why? You know, if people want to argue, let them argue. But I realized that you do not make progress unless you really go with the flow so that was a trigger after 9-11 that it's not just that the lack of opportunity is basically that the, the city was shut down for quite a while particularly for new people and people who needed visa but also that i felt that i needed to sync up quite significantly so then when you came to hawaii hawaii is such a different kind of melting pot how was that feeling yes but if you go to school of business um, again, it's it's Asia, so it is it's a little bit like it reflects Hawaii. So there's quite a strong ratio of or big ratio of, of of Asian students as well. But even that was new to me. Say the American Asian, right? So there's there's a new Asian. By then, I already knew the Asian, particularly the Japanese. But then meeting the the local Japanese, the local Asian was was another kind of good experience for me because I realized no, 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 they're not the same. They're kind of similar, but they're not the same. They're still American, but and they're still Asian, but they're not Asian and they're not American. But there were also people from all around the country. And the software, maybe you see, feel it more, you know, you, you, you see the difference or feel the differences in America, being an American. But for me, it was intense enough already. And we had people and, and people still would argue. And, and I was exactly, you know, I was told in the class that if you do not argue, if you take participation in these debates, arguments in class you will not get enough points to pass the class so i had to forcefully i had to learn how to raise my hand or i had to just raise my own argument and just start you know and it's difficult because we have language handicap in the first place right and if you have fast speaking somebody opinionated sitting next to you it's very hard to argue and particularly if they do not have any sort of culture and you know then they don't want to let you let you finish your thoughts and you finally have kind of organized your thoughts in your head to say what you want to say. And then the conversation changes in the middle of your sentence because somebody jumped in and they change and they have introduced another argument. So it was very difficult in the beginning, but but good enough. Now, outside of the school, I didn't really have much of the outside of the school because I really had no money to you know go out to restaurants or meet people or anything. So what I was able to do is a friend of mine got me a kite for kite surfing picks up some weight board for me and I got a bicycle in a thrift shop and I was able to put it on a on a bus and go to Kailua and kite surf for a little while and then come back and go to school between work and school, right? So 
and in the evening study. So I really didn't have much of that sort of social life. My only social life was Friday evenings with, with again, with students with what used to be Magoos on University Avenue. But other than that, it was it was work, some play, some lab work with with my co students. Then then the the school was between six and nine p.m., which is another interesting thing about the full time MBA program in Hawaii, and the reason why I picked it. And then I studied at night, so I don't have to do things and do homeworks and, and projects on the next day. It was quite intense. What do you think the best aspects of American culture are? Never give up. Is that a different philosophy in Japan? Um, yes, um, there's a different. There's never. There's different. Never give up. There's never give up in Japan. There's never give up in U.S. Um, if you have trajectory, you never give up on that trajectory. That's the Japanese approach. If there's a roadblock, everything stops, right? That that kind of ends the narrative for them. Never give up because there's no more road, so there's nothing to not to give up on. U.S. is no matter how many roadblocks you put in the way, people will change direction. People go up, down, left, right, front, back. Doesn't matter. People will find a way around it and they'll keep going. So that that's phenomenal about U.S. And another thing is, which really I I saw in New York, is how people in the US can come together when it really matters. It's, it's, you don't see that that much in other countries. Like we talk about, you know, now when I said we, I said outsiders, like people or person who was not born in the US, talk about US, that US is very selfish, right? That people are selfish, that, you know, people say, yeah, come to my house, visit me, and they actually don't mean it, da, 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 da. But when it really comes to it, you know, when like things like 9-11 happened, it was just, I was one of the first people putting an American flag in my window, which I didn't know what that means, but I just, I was so proud to be there and to be proud of that movement and, and just, just to, just seeing that there was just too much from people coming that everybody wanted to come together and help. And no matter what it is, what it takes, people would be out there, but they were throwing them out there, out there and then just throwing everything they had. And I'm like, wow, this, so this is America. So, and then there are many other things, but, but, these two just stand out for me greatly. Uh, Merrick, and then maybe winding down, I'm curious about why you chose to move back to Hawaii from Japan. You're married, you have kids. Why did you not choose to raise them in Japan or Slovakia or why the U.S.? I'll try to keep it short. Um, when my daughter was born, uh, it was exactly one month to the date when Fukushima uh, nuclear power plant disaster happened. So there's one trigger right there. Um, another one is for me, you know, I know that there are many people in Japan who basically tell me, oh, I came here for three to five years and tomorrow is my 25th anniversary and they bow more than they should and they bow more than Japanese and it just become kind of awkward. So seeing those people, I always thought, I love Japan. I want to be connected to Japan for the rest of my life, but I do not want to become a clown, Japanese clown kind of thing. So I do want to keep my distance. And, and, and also coming back to my roots, what I was just saying in the beginning, that I belong to this planet. I do not belong to Japan or Slovakia or Hawaii. So even when we came out to Hawaii, we called it Project Hawaii. 
And um, so I wanted my kids to come out of the very structured materialistic society and sort of concrete jungle environment in, in Tokyo, more to nature based environments so they can grow up around ocean trees climb the trees um lila knew about how materialistic hawaii is as well but putting that aside at least it's much closer to connecting to creating a connection with nature for my kids so so that was one of the big things and for me also keep moving i knew that i needed to keep moving and i knew that by then i knew that japan is well behind in many 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 ways and I needed to come to US for, and that Japan was was losing its edge, not even just aging population, but with the Lehman shock, what happened after that, that basically the outlay of, the Japan was no longer the headquarters of Asia for, for the world. So knowing that Japan will have to go through transitions and usually takes thousands of years to, to transition into something, <clears throat> it, I felt that I want to go back to revisit US because US, for its ability to to rejuvenate, re restart, re reinvent itself, will feed, and I also call it the greed in the US, right? The, the greed <laughs> that people want new stuff all the time. It doesn't matter. I go bankrupt today. I want to stand up tomorrow, shake it off, and get twice as much as I had before I went bankrupt yesterday. And that that's the driver here as well. So I knew that there's sufficient energy in the society here they will they will be work as a catalyst for for future development in the country and things putting society development levels and so and so on aside i knew that that hawaii potentially would be a good place to connect asia my asian part and my western side and also be connected to developments in in, in the united states i think it's interesting how i have a lot of what I would call third world or third culture friends, people who are kind of in between societies and cultures, people who speak multiple mm -hmm. languages like yourself. And it's funny, they're often the most positive on the US. Because I think when you, you know, I have an Argentine friend, and you know, she loves the US and obviously sees all the faults here. And she speaks Japanese as well. So she'd be interesting for you to meet, but she can see those downsides. And it's interesting because a lot of people you know, there's a pessimism with the U.S. sometimes from abroad, but it's just interesting that the third world kind of people like yourself really see the benefits of each society and kind of ignore some of the downsides. I think that's a strength. Oh, believe me, I don't ignore the downsides. So that's why I call it Project Project Hawaii. But if you look at even Europe, what's happening in Europe at the moment and, and putting the war aside, I think it's just flashed out the issues that there are in Europe, you know, that the immigration, the the incoherence and that just just basically dwelling on the old values that that you know that the whole world has to change and is driven by what's happening even in in technology because it just changes the way people live think interact societies will interact how they perceive where they're from and where they belong and where they want to go and how they want to be i think that even europe is too slow to adapt to these things and it's so I think it's 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 more getting into that we're more in an open society, like everything becomes more open. And I think we'll we'll head to that and there will be a lot of transition. So so I do see all the negatives, you know, here as well when you know when it comes to education, healthcare system, because those are the dearest to us, I think, right? Like 
there's no future without education and there's no you know we no good life without good healthcare system and and that's something that i just don't think exists in in hawaii period unless you have contacts and and people who will pull you in and so on it's just it's utterly frustrating so there, there, there's those things and and many many other things but at the same time you can really do anything you want in this country without being judged as much as you would be in other countries. So perhaps if you lived, if you became the third country citizen in a way, and you go to the third countries, you know, from the same experience, you would probably see that as well. That, that, um, and you probably have a share of experience of that as well, that, that you see the negatives, but you live with them because they're everywhere. You know, of, you know, of the negatives everywhere. So, Oh, no, positive. Yeah. I mean, I speak many languages and I'm also, you know, lost in the world. So I, I, I'm like you, cosmopolitan. I think one should be able to elect identities and choose to live and adopt cultural practices as one wants. At the same time, I'm a little bit concerned about kind of the globalization of maybe the Western model. Sometimes it erases, um, like I don't have a problem with Japan keeping as Japan, Japanese as it wants. You know what I mean? That's what makes Japan special. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people really want to make it more Americanized, more Europeanized, or if China does its own thing, or if, you know, I, I see both sides. So it, it can be important to be cosmopolitan, but at the same time, I don't like the whole world becoming the same place. That's kind of a loss of culture. Mm -hmm. and, but maybe that's not really a concern for others. Merrick, what last question I have is, you know, how can people find you? How can people contact you if they have questions with uh, your swimming, your business, your language, anything? Um, yeah, well, one is, and I actually don't remember it, so I apologize for that. So we do have a YouTube channel for the swims where you could actually see more about the swimming part of things. But it's, it's. I think it's around, I just, I need to research. I, I apologize for not being even prepared. We, we can post those in the But I can post those, I can yeah. post those links. So there's, there's one YouTube channel, obviously, then, then I have email addresses and I have phone numbers. I love to meet people and so on. So it'd be great to talk to people.